50 seasons of New York Islanders hockey. And the New York Islanders have won their fourth straight Stanley Cup. A once-in-a-lifetime celebration. Oh, my goodness, Ryan Pollock saved the game! This is Talkin' Isles with Greg Picker and Corey Wright. We welcome you into Talkin' Isles, the New York Islanders' official interview-based podcast presented by Betway. I'm Greg Picker, the radio color commentator for the team, joined alongside by the director of digital, Corey Wright. You can also hear Corey on the radio pregame and intermission shows. Corey, this week we bring on the Hockey Hall of Famer, not just four-time Stanley Cup champion like we often say, but seven-time Cup champion, Brian Trottier. Brian Trottier, of course, an Islanders legend. He is first in franchise points, games played, assists, and he is second in goals. So we got to talk to him all about just being an absolute superstar, the only Islander to ever win the Hart Trophy, but a really wide-ranging chat, of course, talking about the Islanders' softball team, talking about playing guitar, talking about even a young Yermer Yager from his time in Pittsburgh. So it's always a pleasure to talk to Brian Trache, and really fun to have him for an extended chat here on Talking Isles. 1,279 games in the National Hockey League, 1,123 of those with the New York Islanders, and also an astounding 221 career playoff games in the NHL. We'll take it away with Trotz. We now welcome in Islanders legend Brian Trottier to the Talk on Isles podcast, a, a native of Southern Saskatchewan. And Brian, we always love to ask guys growing up playing hockey, what was the hockey scene like? And again, Southern Saskatchewan, I don't know if you got quite as much ice time as some of the other guys who grew up in uh, a little bit farther north than you. Well, exactly right. Uh, Southern Saskatchewan is, is pretty mild winters. We get the Chinooks that come out of the uh, out of the Rockies, and so it's mild. Even if you get a snowstorm, the the snow's kind of gone pretty quick. Uh, the warm winds that come out of that out of the coolies up in the up in the, the Alberta, they call them Chinooks. The natives call it Chinooks, and uh, we're right in that belt that comes right through that little area of, of Saskatchewan, the southwest corner. And our winters went from uh, December, January, mid February, late February, sometimes early March, and the, the ice is gone, natural ice. But we had we had ice by the house, so we skate almost every day you know dad would chop beaver dam gives us fresh ice after a snowstorm or something but it was it was pretty special we thought every kid in canada had something like this you know but you know there's ice in town at the little rink and we got we learned that that got covered in 63 or 64 so we had covered covered building then but it was outdoor before that so we had to shovel snow quite a bit to get ice in town the curling rink was always covered because no the grown-ups didn't want to be shoveling ice in the curling rink but no the skating rink the kids we'd, we'd shovel and um but it was great absolutely great wouldn't change a thing uh started skating when i was six organized hockey when i was eight and you know we're all on our way to the nhl it was pretty pretty exciting times watching hockey night in canada and uh, saturday nights that you know watching our idols jean bellavoge gordy howe and stan makita that crew was, it was just a wonderful time to grow up in saskatchewan canada my roots that kind of stuff but no, it's every every young man's dream. Now it's uh, now it's worldwide, and I think a lot of kids throughout the world are, are probably thinking the same thing. Man, I wish I had an outdoor rink where I could play every day and and learn how to skate. I'm in amongst the dead cows and the broken twigs and all the things that were frozen in the ice, and you know, building your skills. But it was a pretty special time. 
But one thing that we've kind of learned just doing this podcast and talking to guys like yourself, that Saskatchewan had a pretty thriving baseball scene back then. You think about Clark Gillies and Bob Bourne both winding up in the Houston Astros system. Dave Lewis told us that he wanted to be a pro baseball player before playing hockey. So maybe can you talk about some of the baseball growing up there and encountering some of those guys, not at the rink, but, you know, out on the diamond. Yeah, yeah, lots of great baseball in Saskatchewan, probably Western Canada in general. But for us, it, it was a long baseball season. Like baseball season started in April, finished in when the snow flies. And uh, we played softball at school, but but baseball all summer long. And we finally got big enough and old enough, like 13, 14, to go to some of these camps. They were held all over Saskatchewan. They were looking for these farm boys that were that were big and strong, obviously. And Clark Gillies, Bobby Bourne were tall, big guys. I was this little short, fat kid from southwest corner of Saskatchewan. But I could throw the ball. I could run. I could hit the ball. And uh, did very well at all these camps. But, uh, you know, I just couldn't quite cut the mustard. I wasn't big enough. And that, that was the story of my life, even in hockey and most basketball. didn't matter what I played. I was always the shortest guy on the team or one of the shortest guys on the team. And But we all enjoyed baseball. We all really enjoyed it. Got to play against Clarkie at a very young age. When I was 15, he was 17. And never played against Bobby up in Kindersley. But, you know, it's really kind of cool that these guys had a little a little taste of, of the majors. Made us all a little jealous. Because baseball, obviously, when I got to New York, going to Yankee games and Met games was, was just a highlight. Because it's like a dream come true. You know, call mom and dad say, I went to Yankee Stadium. That was awesome, you know. Watching, watching the guys, it was it was fantastic, you know. But at the same time, you know, you pursuing the dream of playing hockey, that was my vehicle. And uh, baseball was 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 basically a six, seven, eight month stint during the summer, and that was hockey. And then, uh, but but hockey, you know, in that fabric of the world was uh, everybody everybody enjoyed the game of hockey, and uh, the families all chipped in, sisters, brothers, moms, and dads, and oh, jump in the car and away we go to a hockey game. 1974, you're drafted 22nd overall to the Islanders. And what was special about that draft was it was the first year where players under 20 were eligible to be selected. So you, as you've told us in the past, weren't quite at your full height, full weight yet. So you're a little undersized there. Did you have any expectations going into that draft of where you might go? And obviously, 22nd overall to the Islanders worked out pretty well for you and the team. Well, it's really fun. Like, like I writing the book guys and, and all roads home and thank you for the plugs here and there, but I really, I, that story's I documented in the book. It's the world hockey called me and they said, look, we'd like to offer you $50,000 for 10 years guaranteed money. And to my dad's credit, you know, we found an agent and they said, go in the NHL draft because they're drafting underage this year. Dennis Sobchuk had signed a million dollar contract. So to be offered that kind of money at, you know, 17 years, I was five foot, eight hundred and seventy pounds or something. The Islanders took a shot at me, and I, I was pretty excited because the Stanley Cup was in the NHL. WHA was wonderful money, and obviously Bobby Hall was there, and there's some guys jumping from the NHL to play there. And they had they had, they had you know four or five great years of uh, of hockey, but I was really kind of more excited to play in the NHL because that's where the Stanley Cup was. And for the Islanders to take a shot on me and draft me where they did was, I think to their credit, Earl Ingerfield was uh, was a scout at the time. I ended up having Earl as a, a junior coach, and he's a great mentor. But having Tiger Williams on the left side that last year really helped, you know, even bringing me back into the game and playing left wing. With, and it made hockey fun again and having Clark Gillies on the left side. So I, I could just play my game, not worried about somebody taking my head off. It was really kind of that that defining moment, I think, for all of us. I think, uh, you know, the chemistry of, of two guys or three guys on a line and obviously 20 guys as a group and 
having just great leadership at the top with Bill and Al. I think all those things matter to us all. And I always say this, you know, like it's one thing to have a skill on the team, but it's another thing to have this really strong desire to win. And when I look at that team that we had back in the eighties and, you know, as we grew up in the, in the late, late seventies, everybody wanted to find a way to win and contribute to the winning. And it didn't matter if we had to scrap our way through, if we had to like bang our way through, if we had to score our way through, we had, we had the team to do it. And uh, guys started believing and it was pretty, pretty special group of guys. Well, in your rookie year too, it kind of seemed like Long Island was Saskatchewan East, right? Between Clark Gillies, Bob Bourne, Dave Lewis, Lauren Henning, Chico Resch. I mean, you know, what do you think that did for you just having a bunch of Saskatchewan guys there? Because I'm sure a bit of a culture shock going from Saskatchewan over to Long Island. I mean, obviously it's probably not the same as going from Saskatchewan to Manhattan, but you know, just what do you make of the fact that there were all you Sasky guys there? Well, it really is fun because, you know, training camp, you get invited out to lunch with the guys, Clarky and Bobby Bourne invited me out to the Saskatchewan boys are having lunch together. It was really kind of fun. And then, you know, find out Bobby Nystrom, Gary Howard from the West and the Western boys versus Eastern boys and, you know, Billy Harris. But, you know, like Billy Smith's from a small town and it's really kind of small town. And that's what Long Island is. Long Island's just a bunch of little towns all crammed together to make all of Long Island. And once you got to know that and realize that, hey, you know what? It's just a bunch of little towns like like Saskatchewan, but they're just a little closer together. There, there's this wonderful sense of community. And, you know, we embraced Long Island and Long Island embraced us. And that created another good chemistry because uh, I think we wanted to win for the fans because they really were, were, were supporting us really well and, you know, just really cheered us on and uh, rallied for us. And it didn't matter what kind of community event where they, they supported it, they were there in throws and I, it was just great to feel that that love and that I think equal love that I think went both ways. So for us, Long Island, we kind of grew up on Long Island in a sense, and Long Island was a wonderful place to grow up <laughs> as a group because all the Saskia guys and Westerners and Canadian guys got to really enjoy Long Island, and it was really kind of a fun place for all of us to kind of grow into manhood. So 76, your rookie year, you win the Calder Trophy as the NHL's best rookie, 95 points in 80 games. You take a little bit of a dip points-wise your second year before really exploding in year three. So 72 points, still pretty darn good in 76 games. But was that Al giving you a little bit more of a defensive responsibility, learning that side of the game? What was it over your first couple of years to go from 95 points, Calder Trophy, down a little bit, but then exploding 123? And I know Mike had a, had a little bit to do with the 123 points year number three. Well, a lot to do with it. I think when, when, whenever there's there's point totals involved, it really reflects on your on, on, on who you're playing with and the amount of ice time you're getting, power play, those kinds of things. And that rookie year was special for a whole bunch of reasons. You know, I was riding a wave and just things were clicking on all cylinders. You know, the the Gillies Trotche Harris line was rolling, power play was rolling. Second year, we all dipped a little bit, but that's you know, just reflects on all of us. It wasn't uh any one person, it was all of us. And that's how I kind of look at it. And then when Mike came on the scene, obviously everybody everybody grew because our offensive totals went up. So did the power play. You know, Mike's, Mike was just a big influence for a whole bunch of reasons. I He made me a better player, a better scorer, a better offensive-minded player uh, playing with him. I think I always had a sense of offense. Defense was always a, a part of my game. Bumping players was always a part of my game. You know, you're, you're going to take a little – you're going to take a few bruises, and I, and I did my first couple of years. You know, I, I wasn't big. I was still growing, 5'11", 190 pounds. But I didn't have my man strength, and 
when you're competing against those guys and all of a sudden you think, oh, yeah, I can go against this guy. And then next thing you know, your shoulder's hurting a little bit. And you took a couple knee injuries and got to keep my head up a little bit more. And, you know, you learn and then you get stronger and you get more confident. And those things are just developmental time, growing time. And Al and Bill were great. Obviously, patience, I think, on their part, because they know we're young. The core group was young. We were all in our early 20s. And I think uh, they were they were, they were were patient with us. And Bill just kept adding pieces. And I think every time he added a piece, we embraced that that piece as fast as we possibly could, getting new guys on the team. And you see Kenny Moore, Butch Goring come in late, late you know, Johnny Sinelli, Dave Langevin, you know, and all of a sudden the team is is growing. We're, we're going, we're going leaps and bounds. And so, uh, you know, five, six years, boom, you know, we're challenging for, for Stanley cups and, you know, we're expected to win and those expectations are huge, but at the same time we're young and dumb and uh, we're staying healthy to the, for the most part. And uh, no, it was really spectacular, you know, to be able to contribute offensively one thing, but our bottom line is winning. And really that's, that's what we felt good about. And, you know, you can always misread somebody and Mike, Sometimes it'd be a little grumpy if he didn't score a goal, but the the guy wanted to win. And that's really kind of the, what, what we all wanted. We always wanted to find a way to win. And uh, it didn't matter who scored goals. It was a matter of we won the game. And it was a 2-1 game. Billy Smith was awesome. If we won 6-5 to five or 2-1, to one, it didn't matter to him. We just wanted more goals. And we thank him when he, he kept the puck out on those nights we didn't score a lot of goals. And he thanked us on the nights where we scored enough goals and we won. And he was he was letting goals in. So, and that's just that, that's just a wonderful way a team team responds. And you know, our offense has got to be clicking when our goalie's not real hot, and the goalie's got to be hot when our offense isn't clicking all that much. But hey, you know, there's great teams out there, and and, and they're playing us hard. And when you're uh, you know vying for a Stanley Cup, and now you're winning cups, teams are playing you hard. And it's great. You know, it brings out the best in you. And we had a good group of guys that responded well. Well, you're talking about the points pile up when you've got good teammates, good line mates, but I got to ask you about December 23rd, 1978, because I totally get that. But when you have six points in a single period, something special has really got to be going on. So what do you remember about the game where you had six points in a single period? It's wonderful. Like the, those moments that are going to be one and few or not happen very often, but again, riding the wave, like it's a rivalry game, it's a divisional game, the Rangers, you know, the Ranger Islander, and it just really ramps up the intensity, ramps up the the adrenaline. And I think both teams played really hard. It's just that one of the, it was our night. I mean, it was my night in a sense because if I threw it to somebody, they scored. If they threw it to me, I threw it to the net or touched the puck, it went in or whatever it was. But I just kind of chuckle because at the end of the night, when uh, you know at the end of the second period we're going for the third, it was Dave Maloney was. We did a circle together, and he said, "Man, you did we get an earful from our coach in there? If you score another point, you know we're dead." We're, we're having the we're having a bag skate tomorrow, which made us all chuckle a little bit, you know, because that's the fun of a game. That's the fun of a rivalry is even though like there's moments where, you know, like, hey, it's not dislike, it's respect. And uh, even though we said we don't like each other, we, we really had a kind of a kinship in the sense that it was hockey. It was all about hockey. We all come from from the same backgrounds in a sense. But uh, those Ranger games were, were intense. And, you know, that was a special night for me, obviously. And you know, sneaking into the Madison Square Garden, scoring some goals, or, you know, it's, some nights it's their night. That night was mine and, and our Islanders, and to sneak away with it, with an eight-point game was uh, was incredible. But that, that's going to happen here and there, and six points in one period, unbelievable. You know, again, thanking your line mates, thanking the power play. Things are clicking, you know. Uh, we snuck a couple by the goaltender. I can't even remember who was in that, but I don't think he liked me very much at the end of that game. 
looking back at the box score, was Wayne Thomas that gave up. Wayne Thomas. Uh, yeah, he he picked up the loss. John Davidson did come in for mop-up duty. He gave up just one goal. But, yeah, you had the six points in the second period, a goal in the first, a goal in the third as well for a five-goal, three-assist, eight-point night. And that was in the course of the 78-79 season in which you won the Hart Trophy. You're still the only Islander to ever win the Hart Trophy as league MVP. So how much pride did you take that year? Obviously, it didn't go as well in the postseason, but just to have that honor as the league's best player that season. Oh, man, there's nothing better. Like, individual trophies are are special in a sense because, again, they reflect on your team and obviously how you're, how much ice time you're getting. And I got a ton of ice time that in 78, 79. And I think at, Al and I both learned a lesson. Like, it was just like, you got to go into the playoffs a little. You can't be an empty tank. You know, yeah, it was, I went for the scoring. T- I told Al. And Al was great. You know, double shifted me towards the end of the year. I said, Al, I'm one kick at the cat here. And Mike was fantastic. Mike kind of motivated me to kind of say, you know what? You can win this thing. If you like, let's go. Let's go get it. And he was so supportive, roommate. And I said, thanks, Mike. And I went to Al, and Al was like, okay, get ready. Because, you know, you're going to – and, you know, we pulled I pulled it off. So that was special. The teammates, guys were coming off the ice. Just say, get on there. Empty net. I was like, whatever. And it, it, those things are special because your teammates are all helping you and Al's helping you. And, um, so it was a good rally, but uh, you know, we, we didn't, we didn't do well in the playoffs and the next couple of years, you know, Al was, Al pulled our ice time back a little bit because I can't play you guys out. We got to have a little something in the tank on playoff time. And so you learn from those things and that was good. You know, like to win it once was awesome. The scoring and, and the MVP was fantastic. But you learn at the same time that there's a bigger trophy, there's a more special trophy, and that was the one I was after. Yeah, it's wonderful to have your name on a couple of trophies, individual trophies are great. But, man, having your name on the big trophy, the big shiny trophy, the, the Stanley Cup, pump that over your head and take yourself, like, hey, I'm going to be on there forever. It really kind of kind of means something. And for all our guys, I'm really happy for everybody that uh, I got to share that, 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 that time and that space on the Stanley Cup with them. Well, 1980, you guys win the first of four straight Stanley Cups, and – couple of years ago we did the 40th anniversary of that first cup we did an oral history so getting a lot of the perspectives from the guys that won it and you told a great story about the after party and that perhaps you may have taken the cup home with you that night and uh perhaps you could just kind of walk us through what your night with the cup was like and just that celebration of the first cup in 1980 in general yeah it's really wonderful like that to be able to like uh, share the cup with the guys and celebrate with parties and you know, partners and advertisers, the fans and the, the parade, everything was just spectacular. There wasn't anything better, your family. But I wanted my time. I wanted one moment with the Stanley Cup, my moment. And that's what I dreamed about from the time I was like eight years old is, is how can I celebrate with, with the Stanley Cup myself just personally? And, you know, I, I didn't know what was going on. We didn't have a day with the Cup in 1980. We, there, was no, there was no day with the Cup like they have now. I don't think it started till like mid-90s. But I think it's very good that everybody gets an opportunity to have a day with Stanley and, and have their celebration with how they however they want to celebrate. Mine, I just I snuck it home. I went to Bill Torrey. I said, where's the cup going tonight? And again, it's in the book. It's really kind of fun. Is, but he said, it's just going back to the house to praise tomorrow. And I, I said, do you think I could take it home? I'll bring it to the parade in the morning. He goes, yeah, yeah, go ahead. You know, just kind of a matter of fact. And I, it, to me, it was just magnificent. So I grabbed the cup, walked it out, the keepers of the cup. Where are you going? Threw it in the back seat. Drove home. My family had to find their own ride home. I went home, grabbed the uh, table and put it at the end of the bed because I wanted to be the first thing I saw in the morning. And I opened the drapes because I, I figured the sun will come in. That morning sun will hit it. And it couldn't have been any better. Like the sun hit it. I opened my eyes. That thing was just 
glowing. And uh, so that was that was my moment. That's what I wanted. Yeah, we took some pictures with the family and brought it down to the parade. But uh, I had my special time with Stanley, and uh, it was uh, it was magnificent. So I tried to do it every year. I tried to, and it never was the same. You know, it was never that moment where I tried to do everything the same the next year. And it, it it just didn't happen as as magnificently as it did the first time. But you know, those first times are, are, are pretty special, and that, that was my first time, and uh, it was it was just perfect. So year two of the dynasty in 80-81, the regular season, big part of the goal there was to help Mike get his 50 goals in 50 games, and you played a pretty big role in that, assisting on both goals number 49 and 50 in game number 50. Can you take us back to that night and how special it was for the entire team? Yes. Well, you know, Mike made it perfectly clear, like when he was on a roll and he was going, he was well ahead of the pace for a while and he made it perfectly clear, man, I'd love to go for 50 to 50. I said, Mike, you told me to go for the scoring championship. Let's go for it. Let's, and let's, let's, but to his credit, and this was amazing to me, like he made it public. And I was like, Oh my God, now you've opened up Pandora's box because now not only the media have an attention, but the opposition is going to have attention. They're going to try to shut you down. Mike didn't give two hoots. He's like, I don't care. Throw your best defense at me. I'm, and that's how goal, goal scorers think, I guess. But again, incredible human being. The pass I gave him on, on 50 was not my my best pass. It was actually a grenade. It was kind of a bouncer, rolling, bubbly puck. And he he stopped it, turned on it, snapped it at the net, and he got all of it. He earned it. And he drilled it by the goalie. I think it's Ron Graham. And Ron's a good goalie. And, and Mike hammered it home, did it 50 and 50. But what people forget is like, I ended up getting a goal late in that game and uh, Mike had a chance. He said, Hey, don't worry. Like just put it at my stick. Even if there's people on me, just put it on my stick, put it on my stick. I'll get a shot on the net somehow. I had the puck in, in their zone late in the game and I threw another, he could have broke the record. I thought, you know, maybe, maybe not, but throw the puck to the net. Some good might happen again. Bears on across the line, ran into Richard. The puck loose for Posse. Posse coming in over to Trache. Shoots. He scores. Trache from Posse. couple of guys on him i threw it threw it as a stick he tapped it back to me the goalie went way out of the net to, to pull. i had an empty net i didn't know whether to pass it back to him again but i threw it in the net I said would you pass it back to me shoot the puck and he goes because it was the right play and uh it was the right play and he's 100 percent right because it was the right play now we all would have done the exact same thing but that's mike and people don't know that but i go he goes to his grave but i'll go to my grave you know appreciating uh, the, the, not only the skill but uh the human being that mike is well, we wanted to ask you too, and we know you know you're very close with Mike, and the Islander family lost a legend in Mike last year. But we love asking guys about their road roommates. Like Bob Nystrom used to tell us that Clark would love to watch the soaps back in the day, and we talked to other guys that just say you have you know when you have a road roommate for a long time, you really learn each other's habits, likes, dislikes. And what was it like uh, with you two as roommates for all those years? It's great fun because you share a lot of the same interests. It makes it even more fun. And- Mike and I like the same movies, same kind of movies. We like to, you know, come to like an old married couple, you know, a little bit, you know, like, you know, you know, who's turning the TV on, who's turning it off, you know, the lights on, who, what bed you want, just bathroom habits. It's hilarious. And you poke fun at each other. Mike was smoking at the time. I'm like, oh, cut the cigarettes out. You know, I'm walking to the to the bathroom here under a haze of smoke and you tease each other. And it's just awesome. It's just, it's great to have somebody that you can reflect after a game, the moments, the highlights, some of the things you got to work on and. And it's great having a guy, you know, who shares the same desires, winning Stanley Cup, contributing, finding ways. And uh, 
Mike was that guy. You know, we giggle and laugh some nights, but at the same time, there was lots of seriousness. Preparation, you know, was probably paramount. I think getting proper rest, diet, with all nutrition we knew at the time, and uh, the right kind of conditioning. And we prided ourselves on that. So having Mike as a roommate, and a friend, and obviously line mate, I mean, it made, made it even more special. And I got to say, you know, Greg and I didn't get to know him at the same, obviously the same way that you did, but he worked at the Islander offices our first couple of years with the team. And just what a treat just to get to hear him tell stories. And it was just so funny seeing him at like a photocopier and you're thinking that's the greatest pure goal scorer of all time. And just like the rest of us, he is struggling with that photocopier. And uh, he, <laughs> yeah. you know, he'd like, do you just tell us stories? And one of them that he told us was about the time that he accidentally, or maybe we have to put that in air quotes, accidentally lit your hair on fire. Uh, I was wondering if you could remember that story or just kind of tell it from your perspective, perhaps a, a bus ride where maybe you're feeling the heat a little bit. Yeah, yeah it was comical because like my morning hairdo was, uh, was sticking up and dry hair that we have in the middle of the winter. And I don't know, I was, uh, next thing you know, he's slapping the back of my head and I'm like, what's going on? He goes, I lit your hair on fire. I guess he was playing with his, his lighter or something. He wanted to see how close he could get to my hair before it went on fire. And the thing went up in flames and he's whacking the back of my head. But he said that was payback. We chuckled about it afterwards, you know, because you could smell the hair, the singed hair. And we chuckled about it because I, I came out of it unscathed. But it's, it's, it's insensitive because I accidentally put ashes on his, on his car seat when Johnny Potvin had a baby and we were smoking cigars in his car and the ashes flew back in his back seat. So he said he owed me for, for burning holes in his velour seats and i cracked up i said yeah you did so we're even so in 1987 one of the greatest post dynasty moments in team history you were uh, a big part of because you tied up the game late in the third period against the capitals game seven in what eventually became the easter epic want to get something going now conroy rink wide with that pass to kerr it goes trotier scores trotier Scoring for New York with a low backhander, and we're tied at two. You go back and, and look at that, and I think your entire shoulder is pretty much wrapped up. So how much pain were you playing through during that game and to be able to score such a big goal, and it leads to a, a fantastic moment that, that is talked about all these years later? You know, that's, that's the wonderful thing about hockey players. We find a way to get in the lineup because we want to be a part of something, and if, if you can skate, yeah, you're getting on the ice. I mean, if you can get your skate on and get your helmet on or whatever it is, you can shoot a puck, you're in. And uh, Ron Wassey was fantastic, and the trainers after him, um, Smitty, and everybody was good at trying to find a way to get back on the ice as fast as possible. And I was no different. I wanted to be on. I wanted to be in the lineup. And if I could find a way to get in the lineup, no big deal. And I, I think in, in, in hindsight, I think a lot of us would say, man, maybe we shouldn't take that little shot of Novocaine to get through the game. But – it was so worth it in one sense because to be a part of something special and win that game was was fantastic. Yeah, we we had uh, we two on one the defenseman Al Kerr and I perfect pass between the stick hit me on the fly and I went in through a dinky little backhand shot and trickled through the goalie's legs. You kind of catch him flat footed, you know. That, not used to that little flip backhand and uh, when you tighten net like that, maybe you think you're going to cut in, maybe you go behind the net or throw out the slot, but I threw it right at the right at the pad like Mike taught me hundred times he said, shoot it right at their pads it'll find a hole and uh sure enough it found a hole and yeah pretty made it pretty special when patty turned made the turnaround slapper that you know went through everybody's legs and had a c9 puck and found the back of the net as well and 
but we celebrated. You know, it was really kind of kind of cool. You don't want to lose those games because at about 10 to 2 in the morning when the game finally finished, you know, you're completely exhausted. And I remember how tired I was because Bobby Nystrom came up to me with the beer and he said, here, drink this. You look dehydrated. I said, thanks, Bob. That beer never tasted so good. But uh, it, it's tough to enjoy beer after a loss, but uh, that beer tasted pretty darn good. Well, Kelly Rudy was on the pod, and he told us that after that game, you guys had a bit of trouble getting out of D.C., I think some fog or something. So we always love getting travel stories from the guys. Kelly actually told us a story, too, that when he was a rookie, one of the big thrills was getting to sit on a middle seat between you and Mike. So just between, you know, whether it was weather delays or just the commercial travel back in the 70s and 80s in general, you know, what kind of travel stories do you have? And we asked this to Billy Smith recently. When you were on the team playing, are you a window, an aisle, or I don't think you're a middle guy, but we'll ask it anyway, window, aisle, or middle on the team plane? Oh, yeah. For two years, I sat in the middle. Like, I was the youngest guy on the team, last guy to get a boarding pass. So, yeah, I sat in a lot of middle, and it was wonderful. Whether you sat next to J.P. Parisi or Jude Duran, Andre St. Laurent, there are lots of fun stories you share. You get to know the guys a little bit better. So, between two guys, it was a lot of fun because you had – two guys to talk to, two guys to listen to. And some guys like to sleep. Some guys like to visit. Some guys like to read, whatever. And uh, me, I just enjoyed company. And it was it was just great fun. Eddie Westfall did crossword puzzles. We do crossword puzzles together. It was it was really kind of special. And they, they tried to, I, I don't know if it was, they do this to all rookies, but they put me in charge of uh, luggage. I was taking it pretty serious and getting the luggage from the, the luggage rack in the airport to the bus and the bus to the hotel rooms and the vice versa the other way. And they said, that's a rookie's job. And I was taking it pretty serious till about road trip three. And I, and I just started screwing things up and on purpose and I got fired. So I was happy not to have to deal with that luggage department anymore. And Eddie Westfall laughed about it. He goes, you know, rookie did a good job for about three, three road trips. And after that, you're really screwed up. I said, yeah, thanks Eddie. I did it on purpose. So you guys would fire me, but yeah, it was, uh, my wallet was a little more empty after those road trips. I'm tipping sky caps. I'm tipping bell hops and, trying to make sure everybody got the right luggage to the room. And really, it was funny when I look back at it. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's fun traveling with the guys. There's lots of stories, restaurants, and, you know, yeah, snowstorms, you know, sitting around airports and, you know, just a whole bunch of things. And that's the one that comes to mind right off the hop. So after your Islanders uh, playing career comes to an end in 1990, you move to Pittsburgh and you play a few years with the Pittsburgh Penguins, winning a couple of Stanley Cups. But what really stands out, I think, is the fact that you got to play with a rookie Yarmir Yager. What was a rookie Yarmir Yager like in Pittsburgh? It's fantastic. Like he was, uh, he was a student of the game. He wanted to learn North American hockey, and you know, I, I got to center him for quite a bit of that first year. And, uh, you know, his English was limited, but, you know, we somehow communicated. He called me Big Brian, which was hilarious because maybe because I was older. You know, he's six foot four. I'm 5'11". And uh, he's a monster of a man. Like, he's just a huge human being. But he was he was young then. He, he, was, he was tiny up top, and from the waist down, he was like a thoroughbred. Protected the puck well, and, you know, he could stick handle in the phone booth. And, you know, it's tough to get the puck off him, much like Mario Lemieux. So the two of them were... Were, were pretty dynamic stick handlers. But when he learned the give and go and he learned soft picks and he learned how to shoot because he didn't want to stick handle and deep the goalie every time. And like he was, he was fantastic. Great, great teammate, um, good energy, big smile, big hair. There's lots of energy in that, that kid. And, but when it comes to perform in game time, you know, he was get a little frustrated if he didn't get on the power play, get a little frustrated if he didn't get a lot of ice time. But uh, you know, when he got his time, all of a sudden like, Oh, NHL, look out, this kid's going to be a menace. 
So The Athletic recently published a story about what guys do during the intermissions of games and kind of ran the gamut. You know, some guys are just kind of sitting there, I guess, maybe focusing. Other guys are, you know, drinking a can of Coke. One of the ones that stuck out as perhaps one of the stranger ones was that Butch Goring would sign autographs. Like he would sign photos of himself during the intermissions. So <laughs> first off, do you remember that? But also, you know, what was your kind of approach to intermissions? Uh, I'm not sure if anything as zany as that, but, you know, what'd you do for those, you know, 20 minutes between periods? I don't remember Butch signing autographs, but I do remember uh, his, his, his father was always collecting something for, for a charity back in Winnipeg. So he's probably signing stuff for his dad, you know, getting it back to Winnipeg and, you know, building his cash so that he could, you know, have a little warehouse of goodies to give his dad next road trip. But um, yeah, no, I was pretty quiet in the locker room in the middle period. You know, I like to, I like to, to, to reset. It was an opportunity to, you know, kind of like have a Coke and a water. The Coke was a little shot of a, of caffeine and then a little water to quench the thirst and then boom, get ready. Um, you know, retape the stick. Uh, reset and then uh, win, lose, or draw, whether we're winning, losing, or it's a tie game, just get ready for that first shift and uh, be prepared, be better prepared than the opposition. And uh, if you could kind of catch them napping, and I always felt them, I said to myself, you know, like if they come out a little flat, we're sure not going to be flat and we're going to try to see if we can zing them or ding them early. And um, it really took a lot of pride in that. Um, so, yeah, so my, my intermissions were pretty, pretty quiet, pretty calm. Now, we know you are a fantastic guitar player as well. Is that something that you have picked up recently, or has that always been part of your repertoire? Well, it's not a fantastic. I strum a guitar, but I play a lot. Of, I, we played a lot growing up. Dad had a family band. I was a bass guitar player. And age 40, I could always strum it. I knew all the chords to all the songs that we played. We played thousands of songs and rodeos, Jim Cannon's weddings, funerals, unfortunately. But we had a family band, and my sister was a singer, and Dad was a singer, and I just sung some harmony. And... When dad passed away, I kind of had to take over the lead singing where dad, and it was really kind of cool to jump back into the family band. You know, my sister kept it going for quite a few years and her boys are terrific musicians. And But music's always been in the family. There's lots of singers and songwriters. My my cousin Linda was down in Nashville for over 20 years and, you know, she's got some great songs. She put out some great records and pretty proud of the, the uh, legacy dad started because like prior to dad, there was, there was music, like grandpa played the fiddle and grandpa played the piano, but to be able to like strum a guitar around a campfire and sing some songs and entertain some folks and always looking for singers. So if you guys can sing, I'll strum the guitar, but I'll always look at it this way. Like it's hard to play a bass guitar around a campfire, but I taught myself the chords of a guitar about age 40, more of the minors and, and some of the uh, flats and that kind of stuff. So I could play more songs and uh, learn the right kind of keys. Cause it, when you, you play bass guitar, it's kind of a, a wonderful instrument in the sense that you just boom boom and then walk the bass here and there but but the guitar was a lot of fun and uh so now we have a lot of fun with it you know i've played in a lot of different venues i've played a lot of different events and it kind of like uh gives people another another side of uh of myself as uh, you know like not just a talent but it's it's a joy to be able to share that joy of music and i think everybody enjoys music so yeah i'm kind of a country western guy i like country rock and lots of different genres but you know country's kind of like our classic country and traditional country's kind of where i i go the willie nelson johnny cash down the middle clark gillies was my kenny rogers the gambler singer and he, uh, he loved to entertain and it was great having him as a, as a, as a buddy uh, up on stage whenever i played the guitar and um but everybody got a kick out of it you know whether it's uh the hockey world or even people who aren't necessarily hockey fans they're music fans and um i get to i get to throw my 
my old identity of country music with the family and uh, and bring that kind of uh, pleasure to, to folks who enjoy that that kind of music. Yeah, some musical talent on those teams, whether it's Clark's. Uh, we've seen a few of those gamblers. And then recently, I think we all uncovered that John Tonelli had a pretty good Elvis impersonation. But, you know, kind of circling back to the softball side of it, you guys had a softball team back during the Dynasty days where you would play, you know, other NHL teams. And there's that great photo of you and Shea Stadium. And I think you guys are playing the Rangers there. So, you know, what do you remember about not just having a softball team, but like, playing other nhl teams i feel like if that happened today that'd be a big hit oh my god yeah and like we we, we weren't allowed to wear cleats because nobody was building modest twisting ankle but they really encouraged us to get out in the community and we played a lot of fire firemen around long island we played a lot of a lot of softball because we all love we all love baseball clark you know bobby Bourne, bobby nystrom gary howard we had a good crew of guys lorne henning uh all good ball players really dave lewis really good ball players and so we had a great team, Billy Harris. Oh God, he throw a ball, but it was really kind of fun to be able to, you know, get to know Long Island again, engage with the fans, and you know, raise some money for charity. And we had Imus brought in the charity charity softball team. We played them, the Giants. We played, you know, the Philadelphia Flyers, and it was great fun because uh, it, it gave us a summertime activity as a group. At the same time, you know, it, it allowed us to kind of enjoy a little a little softball, a little baseball, so to speak, and. You know, because it's it, it's in our blood to be athletes and to enjoy another sport and share that joy with folks. And, and people, came, again, they came out, and they supported us and cheered us on and kind of laughed at us, I'm sure, here and there. But, yeah, we played Eddie Fainer, king in the court. Uh, Clark Gillies bombed one off him, which was really kind of cool. But, you know, that that's the fun of it. Eh? Like, we're as much as we, we, we enjoy the, the competition, we enjoy teasing each other. And, uh, yeah, there's lots of teasing going on, like uh, nice pop-up. You know, oh, nice throw, old timer, like just all those things that make it make it fun to be a part of a team. Uh, no, and those shorty shorts, I, yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> pretty cool to look back at some of those photos. Trots, great to hear from you. Always great to catch up, and we know the fans love hearing those stories as well. So, thank you for joining us. A pleasure, guys. Thanks, Corey. Thanks, Greg. Talk to you guys later. Well, thank you again for joining us on another edition of Talk at Isles. Please make sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you might listen. You can follow us on Twitter. I am at Greg Picker here. And I am at Rightsway. You can follow all the latest info about the team on Twitter at NY Islanders and stay up to date on UBS Arena at ubsarena.com. A big thank you to our producer, Rachel Lusher, and to WRAQ at Hofstra University. And we'll see you next time on Talking Isles.